1628, religious tension in England came to a head. It had been building for generations, but the country had finally divided along the lines that would soon lead to war. And it was in this year that the biggest English migration to America started. The Great Migration, in which 21,000 Puritans would head to New England to set up a new model society. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvala, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. Now, the thing you need to understand before we get into the details of the conflict is that in the 17th century, it was taken as pretty much a given that countries should be unified under one church. Ideally, the whole of Christendom, but at the very least, individual countries. That's something that goes against modern sensibilities, but there were reasons for the, for the belief. First and foremost, the unity of a country in terms of religion meant order, and a higher level of satisfaction with the government overall. In a more unified country, it was less likely that you'd do something that delighted half the population while inciting the other half to riot. Peace, order, harmony, and stability started with unity, and a unified church was one of the biggest parts of that. When King James spoke against the separatists, it was because they threatened this unity. James was already the king of two separate countries with entirely different denominations of Christianity, and the last thing he needed was for the countries themselves to split internally. His archbishop, Bancroft, said that fragmenting and England, in terms of religion, would, be, would ultimately lead to civil war between factions, and it did, as we'll soon see. And the separatists themselves often spoke of wanting to influence policy. They just thought that creating an ideal church outside of the established one was the way to do that. As Brown termed it, reformation without tarrying for any. The other benefit of unity was that a united church would be better able to stand up against corrupt people abusing their wealth and power who tried to take it over. An individual congregation could be used for personal profit or manipulated by some wealthy person hoping to gain influence, but a unified church could withstand such assaults. A unified church with bishops could with, could withstand these assaults even better because the bishops would answer to the king in a system of essentially checks and balances. When King James died in March 1625, his son Charles inherited his divided kingdom. He also inherited his father's desire for unity, both within England and in terms of bringing England and Scotland together into, unite, into a united kingdom. And he inherited his father's ideas about the importance of episcopal succession and the divine right of kings. In many ways, though, Charles was the opposite of his father. Whereas James's court had been a source of embarrassment for the English, Charles was extremely disciplined. He'd been so sickly as a child that he wasn't really expected to survive, but 
Through disciplined exercise, he grew to be very athletic by the time he was crowned. He minimized his severe speech impediment by learning to sing, and by the time he was crowned, he was one of the best educated and most cultured people in England, with exquisite artistic taste and a love of order and discipline. But he was deeply shy, and he didn't necessarily read people well. And he certainly wasn't as combative or successful in political maneuvering as his father had been. Charles also believed in a relatively new flavor of Protestantism called Arminianism. Apart from the fact that both Calvinism and Arminianism were Protestant denominations, they couldn't have been more different. Arminianism emphasized ornate rituals and worship, whereas Calvinism preached simplicity. Calvinists believed in predestination, whereas Arminians emphasized the role of the person in choosing to follow God. Calvinism said that there should be no bishops or hierarchical leadership, and Arminianism said that episcopacy was one of the most important parts of the church. For Charles, Arminianism meant beauty, order, social stability, and a hierarchy with people serving both those above and below them. These were all things he valued, so Arminianism was a perfect fit for his vision of an ideal English society. He also felt, as had James and Elizabeth I, that... Puritanism with too much power would put an end to the monarchy, with the monarch either eliminated or left as nothing more than a puppet. Lots of people agreed with Charles and lots disagreed with him, and the majority of people just didn't really care that much about these kinds of debates. The problem was the people who disagreed with Charles, namely the Puritans, were among the richest and most powerful people in England at the time. Puritans were politically organized and held a huge number of seats in Parliament, especially in the House of Commons, but also in the House of Lords, thanks in part to James's selling of titles. Instead of a wider society of hierarchy, Puritans emphasized the nuclear family and community uniformity as the basic units of social order. To them, no bishop, no king wasn't a threat, it was a dream. They wanted to push the Protestant Reformation further to make the church a series of Calvinist congregations, and they approved of laws which regulated behavior into the extreme as long as they were passed by elected officials. They wanted to eliminate all vestiges of Catholicism and replace them with a society in which sin was essentially regulated and legislated out of existence, with community enforcers ready to punish people who deviated from the accepted norms. But Puritanism wasn't just a religious movement. It wasn't exactly a group of, well, depending on your personal feelings, devout or fanatical Christians who were meticulously applying the Bible. It was a movement with a very distinct cultural center in an area with a long history of political radicalism. It had a number of unique characteristics, 
most of which were deeply connected to the culture and history of East Anglia. And that's something that we're going to see time and again as this series progresses. East Anglia is a place in eastern England around Cambridge, Norfolk, Suffolk, etc. Britain's actually a shockingly diverse little island. It's been shaped by wave upon wave of invaders with different ideas, values, beliefs, and systems of government. East Anglia was a seafaring region whose economy came from trading and whose main threat was raids by other mariners, starting with the Vikings and ending with the Catholic Dunkirkers. It had poor soil, and even in 1630, the two towns nailed the skins of marauding Danes to their church doors. The raiders... The raiders didn't always come, steal, and leave, though. Over the centuries, many had decided to stay and shape the region's culture and economy. The region had a huge Dutch presence, too, with trade, immigrants, architecture, religion, and culture all coming from the Netherlands. So the combination of these factors had created a a society within England that heavily favored the middle class with fewer servants and fewer nobles than elsewhere. Of course, the lower-class people who were there weren't treated very well, and there are many stories of them being driven out to prevent their being a burden to society, but it became a fundamental... But that middling status became a fundamental part of its social structure. And through its maritime connections... East Anglia started to become more of that a become more of a part of that European sea town network that we discussed in the brownest episode and somewhat less connected with the rest of English culture. It also enjoyed a much higher rate of literacy and education than the rest of England again thanks to its middling status. Over the centuries, uprisings which occurred there tended to focus on these themes. As part of Robert Kett's rebellion, Kett sat under an oak tree called the Tree of Reformation, while gentry were tried and terrorized before a makeshift jury of their former victims. In Watt Tyler's Rising, a group of people marched from East Anglia to London, where they killed anyone they could find associated with the royal government, and burned the city's legal district. This event sparked a widespread peasants' revolt, and it was prompted by the sermons of of a radical East Anglian priest named John Ball. Ball was a Lollard, which was a pre-Luther movement that advocated many of the future Protestant ideas, vernacular Bible readings, no transubstantiation, and no Catholic rituals. Lollardy was an English movement, and it was very strong in East Anglia, and when Luther did come along, you guessed it, The Reformation took hold in East Anglia more than it did elsewhere in England. 225 of the 273 Marian martyrs came from there, and Boston, Lincolnshire, which is a part of the region, 
was the maternal home of Anne Boleyn, Thomas Cromwell's family, and John Fox. In the 17th century, the stereotype of an East Anglian, regardless of class or social status, was that they were dour, stubborn, fond of argument, fond of litigation, and Puritan. By 1625, though, Puritans had spread their influence throughout England. East Anglian clergy preached in all but two English counties, one in the far north and the other on the Welsh border. They even sent, quote, missionaries to Yorkshire, which still had too much Catholicism for their liking. This helped with their political organization, and they had a strong presence in Parliament, like I said. So, in short, there were two Protestant schools of thought, completely opposite in essentially every way, and while the king supported one, the majority of rich and politically connected people in England supported the other. The differences weren't just theological, they were cultural, economic, and political, and just about the only thing they could agree on was that England should be rid of the Pope and it should be internally unified. The monarchy was at its weakest point in generations, while Puritanism was at its strongest ever. What could possibly go wrong? Well, a good place to start would be the Duke of Buckingham, James's most hated advisor and favorite, and justifiably so. He had the confidence and panache that Charles himself lacked, though, and he and Charles were good friends. Charles really had no family left when he ascended to the throne, his parents and brother all dead, and his sister married to the Bohemian king. So Charles came to rely on Buckingham, and was loyal to him to a fault. The Thirty Years' War was raging on the continent, so tensions were already high, and while Parliament wanted to support Protestants, they actually didn't want to spend the money to do that. England's government had been chronically underfunded for over a century, and war was a big expenditure. Elizabeth I and King James both knew that parliamentary support for war didn't necessarily mean that they'd vote to support it financially, but Charles assumed that if Parliament wanted to help support the Continental Protestants, they would give him the money he needed to do it successfully. Then, three months after he took the throne, Charles became the first Protestant king ever to marry a Catholic, which required papal approval and a treaty si- and a treaty saying that Charles would roll back oppression of English Catholics, suspending the enforcement of penal laws and releasing people who had been imprisoned for their Catholic faith. To make matters worse, his wife wasn't a quiet Catholic. Henrietta Maria was openly Catholic, surrounded herself with Catholic ministers, made a pilgrimage to Tyburn in bare feet to pay respects to the Catholic martyrs, and would end up converting a fair number of people within England who would attend a cathedral which she had built. So, that's a start. Then, Parliament made an unprecedented political move. 
Parliament refused to grant Charles lifetime duties on wine and imports known as tonnage and poundage. This was the only money that the crown got independently of Parliament. Anything above and beyond tonnage and poundage and the king had to call a Parliament and essentially negotiate with it. Giving tonnage and poundage for a year only meant that Charles would have to call a parliament again in a year and politically negotiate with them. If they continued to extend it year by year, the king would be essentially subservient to parliament, politically unable to do anything that parliament really disagreed with without suffering major repercussions. Then parliament voted for two subsidies to help Charles fight the Spanish at Cadiz, but they only gave a tenth of what was needed to fund an effective war. Ten percent of the money that Charles had anticipated to fight one of the most powerful countries in Europe. They refused to grant any more funding unless they could supervise its expenditure. So, six months later, the English raided Cadiz with undersupplied troops, and Buckingham in charge, so the confrontation was predictably a disaster. Then Charles had to call a parliament, and Buckingham was so unpopular that he was close to being impeached, and not just by the Puritans. Charles then dissolved parliament, and this of course meant that Charles's year-long tonnage and poundage ended without being renewed, so he had no income. This is all one year into Charles's reign. To get around the tonnage and poundage, Charles turned to the force loan. Now, Charles was far from the first king to use this tactic. It had been relatively common in Tudor times, and James I had issued them too. Because Charles stated his intention to use some of the money to aid Protestants in Europe, most people were actually fine with paying the loan, and soon he had £250,000. The loan did, however, provide a perfect rallying point for everybody opposed to the concept of royal prerogative. There were dozens of people who refused to pay, in particular five knights and a man named named John Hamden, all East Anglian Puritans, and even outside the scope of Parliament, they could use the courts to sue Charles on the policy and hopefully diminish the royal prerogative through that venue. The judges sided with Charles against the knights, but it was a very damaging confrontation for the king. Then, King Charles started to promote Arminian bishops, including one named William Laud. In 1633, Laud would become the Archbishop of Canterbury, and it wouldn't be long before he was the most hated person in England. Laud came to Charles predictably through Buckingham, who, it's worth noting, was a Protestant but born to Catholic parents, so if anyone was looking to for connections to a greater popish conspiracy, they didn't have to look too hard. Laud was extremely opposed to Puritanism. I mean, Bancroft had gone after the Puritans, but he himself was a Calvinist. 
Now, in Charles, the Puritans saw a king with a Catholic wife and a pretty much Catholic archbishop who was using his powers to oppose Puritans. Early on, Laud submitted to Charles a list of bishops categorized as either being Orthodox or Puritan. He and the Arminian bishops also gave some sermons explaining the king's rights and encouraging people to support the king and exalting the monarchy. And in a few years as archbishop, he would begin to aggressively use the star chamber. If you listened to the first episode on the pilgrims, you'll know that even under King James, the star, the star chamber was a venue for and symbol of royal prerogative, which was deeply hated and aggressively attacked by people who didn't support the royal prerogative. To eliminate the star chamber would drastically increase parliamentary control of, over the country, so it was already a contentious issue. Laud brought the issue into the spotlight. He used it in part to protect poor people from rich, would-be oppressors. He was a man of humble origins himself but he also used it to go after Puritans. The chamber had previously been used to go after Catholics and Separatists and even Puritans, but Laud was going after the people with money and power, and they could fight back not only against Laud, but against the court itself, and, therefore, the concept of royal prerogative. Most famously, in 1634, Laud would go after a man named William Prynne, a prolific Puritan writer who believed in the overall parliamentary control of religious matters, and in particular, he wrote a tract criticizing plays in a way and with a timing that made it look very much like he was calling the queen a whore. So, Laud tried him, had him imprisoned, fined, and chopped his ears off. Compared to Tudor punishments, it was benign, and in later years, some royalists would claim that Charles's lack of ruthlessness on the matter was what allowed the political climate to get out of hand. But Prynne's sentence was another great rallying cry for Puritans. Also in 1627 came the siege of La Rochelle in France, which ended up being an even bigger fiasco than Cadiz. Charles didn't have that much money, Buckingham still wasn't a good military leader, and the English essentially accomplished nothing, 4,000 people died, and people were again furious at Charles's favorite, but... Charles took the blame on himself. Then he tried his next money-raising scheme by demanding ship money, which again was an established tradition, but Charles expanded its use beyond what was traditionally accepted. Multiple counties refused to pay, and Charles backed down and called a new parliament. At the next parliament... The wrath bypassed Buckingham and turned directly toward Charles himself. People were angry about the 
forced loans and the imprisonment of the five knights, and Charles was presented with the Petition of Right, which highlighted and emphasized English civil liberties. At first, Charles said that he'd only acknowledge the petition within the existing legal framework, noting that the House was pressing not only upon the abuses of power, but upon power itself, meaning making an attempt to limit royal sovereignty. Then, Charles backed down, taking a seat in the Lords, removing his previous inconclusive response and confirming the petition's legality, saying that now that he'd done his part, if this Parliament didn't have a happy conclusion, then it wasn't his fault. Soon, though, Commons went into committee on the subject of the king's finances, preparing a remonstrance attacking Charles's use of custom duties and other taxes without parliamentary consent. Before the debate, Charles prorogued the assembly and reverted back to his first answer on the petition of right, but his acceptance was still legally valid. In 1628, Buckingham was killed by a disgruntled army officer who had been, who hadn't been paid and who had been passed over for promotion, and who declared himself an executioner rather than an assassin. After the death of Buckingham and the success of the Petition of Right, the lines were drawn in the sand. Some people said that Parliament had gotten what it wanted and that now King and people could come together in a perfect unity. They said it was time for Parliament and King to start cooperating, and the most famous person to make the transition was Thomas Wentworth, now the Earl of Strafford, who had been one of the leading voices supporting the Petition of Right, but who would come to be one of the King's leading advisers. But the conflict didn't go away. It was now that the topic turned to religion itself. Charles had a soon-to-be archbishop who said the church had authority to decree ceremonies and decide on controversies. The House of Commons said that only Parliament could decide on the religion of the country. One Puritan MP said that the Arminians wanted to break Parliament lest Parliament should break them. When Charles sent his Speaker of the Commons to adjourn Parliament for a week, which was again standard procedure, members stood up shouting, No! No! And the Speaker stood up, which officially ended Parliament, but other MPs forced him back into his seat, saying, God's wounds you shall sit till we please to rise. When other MPs tried to leave, the doors were blocked, locked, and the key put away, and then they threatened to punish the Speaker for doing his duty to the King instead of Parliament, where his loyalty should lie. Then, in this environment, an MP proposed three resolutions. The first was that anyone who tried to introduce Popery or Arminianism into the kingdom would be considered a capital enemy. 
The second was that anyone who ad- who advised the levying of customs duties without Parliament would be considered an enemy. And the third was that if any merchants voluntarily paid the duty, they'd be called a betrayer of an enemy to the kingdom. The resolutions were adopted, Parliament was adjourned, and dismissed for the next 11 years. Some members were arrested, and if, but a fair number of people agreed with Charles's actions and rationale. This is the environment in which Puritans started planning a mass emigration to the New World. The first ships to Jamestown and Plymouth had carried about a hundred settlers each, but the first fleet to Massachusetts Bay carried a thousand people plus livestock, supplies, and personal belongings, all aboard 11 ships. The next fleet was so big that ships at the head of the fleet mistook the tail for a whole different group of ships, assumed they were French pirates, and only realized their mistake after loading their cannons and guns and shooting a flaming arrow into the water. And the people, well, they were Puritans. They were largely affluent, almost all educated, but rarely aristocrats. They brought most of what they needed in terms of provisions, and they meticulously chose the people who were allowed to participate in the venture. None too poor to pay their own way, and only the godly. Most of them came from within 60 miles of the East Anglian town of Haverhill in Suffolk, and the ones who didn't come from there, by and large, had either lived there or had pastors who had. It was an intensely regional migration. This was also a different mission than before. Neither Jamestown nor Plymouth settlers had moved to America with the intent of changing policy at home. But English Puritans in 1627 cited that as a major motivation. They could be free of Laud's policies in the Netherlands, but they couldn't really influence policy from there. In America, though, they'd attract attention, and in America they could set up what they considered to be the ideal Reformed society, and they could use that, the New England model, to push for changes at home and in Europe. In the next couple months, we'll see exactly what this meant and what this ideal was, or if it was a unified ideal at all. The New England model would indeed impact politics in England in a pretty major way. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter, and you can find those links at the website AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to first-hand accounts and things. See you next week.